Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect Go Loud Sounds better with us Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, the podcast series of lengthy interviews that I conduct at my kitchen table at home with support from Strategic Power Connect. And I'm delighted today that we are joined by the Chief Executive of IBEC, the representative body for business in Ireland, Danny McCoy. Thank you very much for being with us. Hi, Matt. Uh, Danny, you're an economist as well as being the Chief Executive of IBEC. How did you get into being an economist? Well, I'd like to say it was deliberate, it, but there was some deliberateness to it. Um, so uh, I'm from Tume in County Galway, so grew up really in the 70s. And unbeknownst to myself, Tume was quite an economic town in terms of a sugar factory that was closing down, a railway line that was closing down. The railway line is still topical along greenways and so on, I find, from uh, from the Tume Herald every week. But the... In that debate, there was this kind of uh, term economist, and it seemed to have a lot of respect in the 1970s, uh, much more so than when you hear the word economist today. It seemed to be like a, a really strong professional person that you get an economist to tell you to either close this thing down um, and so economists were kind of blamed by the natives for bringing these harsh economic realities so I was kind of very aware of the idea of an economist wasn't quite sure what they did and then just when I went to school and did business and so economics um, I kind of was drawn to it, but actually, literally, I do think I was drawn to it because of just observing 1970s uh, tune. And did you come from a business background? I came from a family of plumbers, so um, tradition of plumbing, uh, right going back to great-grandfather and so on. Um, And that would have brought us to the town to put in the town waterworks. So it's... um, It was a very interesting place. Sorry, were you not expected to follow in the family tradition? Well... This is this is something that's only in, in retrospect. Um, no is the answer on the basis that there was no money in plumbing. And, of course, when the Celtic Tiger came along, it was very ob- observable, it is observable today in our society, that plumbers and electricians uh, have quite strong businesses, quite strong lifestyles because they're scarce and valuable. And I guess the lesson that I didn't know in the 1970s, 1980s was that that's a real indicator when a society is rich. Uh, plumbers and electricians can't get rich if their customers have no money. If they can get rich, it's a sign that their customers have money. It's nearly a QED. And um, so I could be a lot richer today if I stayed in the family business, perhaps. But were you not encouraged to do so? What do they make of the fact that Danny has decided that he wants to go off and become an academic and an economist? I, I, think, it was, I think it was on that basis that didn't see... Uh, the future. In fact, I'm a bit of a saw doctor's uh, lines come to my head there. I didn't see much future when I left the Christian Brothers School um, in the plumbing end of things, at least. But the I did commerce in Galway, and that's where I kind of started to get specialising in, in economics. But now to go back to it, funnily enough, it was more the seed was actually planted younger than normally when people go to college, they kind of find their way. I was, actually wanted to be an economist for a long time. 
Do too many people, though, perhaps at present, go to third-level education and eschew the opportunities that may be available through apprenticeships? Oh, oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things about the market is uh, it really is demand and supply. And so it is arguable, even though we're now at a full employment economy, but it's arguable over the last couple of decades that we've had an excess supply of graduates in all various um, disciplines. And the frustration that feeds into the political sphere as well, that having an anticipation of going to university um, and getting onto a career ladder and getting a good job, get money, get a house and all that, that actually those decisions at that point, going to university and not going down the route for apprenticeship and providing that service into society, that those who went for the trades have actually been in excess uh, demand space, and that's why they make the money. So I think we've, we've probably ended up with too many people choosing the academic route and not enough the apprenticeship route. And we're trying to retrofit that now. In the, in, we're much more enlightened, I think, as a society. We're trying to see apprenticeships a, a lot more valuable. They're not just in the construction trade, which tended to be in the kind of the, the wet and dry trades of of construction we're now seeing although people we need, we need those as well we certainly we? need those as well yeah but i mean apprenticeships is a lot more sophisticated now in you know working with plastics and polymers and various uh, things like this so i think that there should be a realization among uh the generation that there's different ways to f- have fulfilling careers and more interesting there's different ways of making a lot more money than perhaps the traditional route of um, of Irish petty bourgeois Irish who try to use education to change social class. Indeed. So whose fault was that, if fault it is? Is it the Irish state encouraging it? Or was it the Irish mammy and the state following the example of the Irish mammy who didn't want her son to be doing a trade but to have a professional job instead? Yeah, I think that that's probably true, that it's probably more organic coming from the household or from the kitchen table than from the cabinet table, if you, if you really yeah. uh, think about that. I think I, I think that is actually fair. Um, but interestingly, you know, we could be at a junction as this society, just, you know, we look back now, that might have been a mistake. I don't mean for any, any particular individuals, but just in, in a collective form. That interestingly, we might be at one of those points now, kind of a 1970s, 1980s point, where what do we advise our next generation to do? particularly with artificial intelligence as one of those issues coming up, what kind of jobs will be out there? What kind of skill sets will people require? You know, because again, 1970s, 1980s, when you looked around, you could see what people were doing. You know, they were generally working from the, the neck down, so to speak. You could see their hands moving. They were lifting stuff, making stuff, moving things around. Uh, then you moved maybe into this generation where increasingly it was becoming services-based. It seemed to be more about um, from the neck up, so to speak, using your brain. Um, that became much more predominant. Are we now going to have another shift here where that brain power is replaced by artificial intelligence more significantly? Where do humans go next? Maybe it's towards the heart in terms of care, caring about um, people. Now, that's not just in terms of the physical aspects of elder care or, or young care, it might be the notion of coaching, of passing on wisdom, of consulting, you know, that we may find a lot more engagement. And you might say, well, there won't be enough jobs in that. But, you know, one of the things that we have noticed is that, you know, in terms of housework uh, or domestic work, even with all the appliances we have now, 
even with the trend for outsourcing of activities from cutting grass to ironing, whatever it might be, that the hours engaged in by households in those kind of tasks actually increased. Parenting is a much more time-intensive activity in our modern age because kids aren't out in the streets or making their way around. They're being, you know, shepherded around. Our, our dogs and cats are taking a lot more time. That humans create work for themselves, even if they get displaced in other areas. So AI, I think, I'm much more on the positive side of AI, but there's an adaption there. And could that adaption mean that we will go towards having maybe a universal basic income, as some economists have suggested, that everybody has to have a certain amount supplied to them from the wealth created by AI, and then they can increase that themselves by whatever work they do? Yeah, it's an interesting proposition. It's, it's one I, I don't know the answer to, but it, it is a proposition that you know we need these kind of safety nets. Uh, you know, the, the philosophers would tell us What's, what's just? What's the theory of justice, this idea that uh, John Rawls would have brought forward? If you didn't know where you were going to be in society, if you're behind a veil of ignorance and you had to decide what kind of world is out there when the veil or the curtain goes back, if you thought you were going to be the poorest person in that society, you'd probably make sure the, per- the poorest person had a fairly decent income. It's kind of a maxi-minimum principle. And that might be what AI is going to disrupt. So maybe something like universal income will, will be on the agenda. To be an economist as well, do you actually also have to be attuned to things like psychology, sociology, philosophy, rather than just crunching numbers? You should be aware of it. You know, it's, uh, it's a kind of a, a storytelling profession as much as anything else, pretending to uh, rely on empirical evidence. And so there's, there's a mix of lots of factors. A lot of economists actually are in very specialised areas be it in academia or be it in the energy sector, you know, doing cost-benefit analysis or looking at regulatory impact assessments. But public commentators, probably the space that I've been mostly in, you, you know, have to take uh, a view of the trends and the zeitgeist that's out there. You know, it could, it could even be as daft as some economists might say, well, what kind of zodiac signs are people born under? Like, uh, is, is your society for some reasons... Uh, you know, you might see a spike in the birth rate in September if there's a very good Christmas effect. Uh, you know, this, this, this kind of, it's a, it can be a bluffer's charter, to Yeah, be but honest. one of the reasons I ask that is as more and more data becomes available, it's more easily collected and measured. Can there be times, though, when perhaps too much of the future is predicted on the basis of data without actually factoring in human behaviour and the unexpected? Yeah, I think so. And that's probably that's what I was referring to in, in uh, household activities that creates work for us, that they're behavior responses. So, you know, again, if you futured look into uh, from the past into 2024, you would say, well, those people have a lot of leisure time. And, you know, we probably do have a lot of leisure time. We kind of choose it to um, do things that we think are productive and busy and go to meetings or volunteer or whatever we make ourselves busy um but actually that might relative to the past be a work-life balance issue um a lot of people can can lean out now um they have to take the consequence of lower income but it's not as devastating as leaning out in the past where sometimes uh, lives were you know both short nasty and brutish we're both of a similar age and I stayed in Ireland, but you emigrated for a while. Why did you decide to emigrate? Yeah, again, um, well, you did emigrate from Cork to Dublin, you know, so it's only, it's only a matter of uh, 
of movement. It's only uh, geography boundaries. Um, so a lot of people do actually move. Um, but I, you know, having moved to Dublin, that was the first emigration. Um, when, I only went to uh, London in the 90s for a fairly short period, four or five years. That was actually driven by um, the economics profession because that in particular was one of the places where if you have an international stamp and bring it back again, it was much more career-enhancing. So that was a very... It was del- professional development. It was, a, it, was, it was professional development, yeah. It was to get that international branding. And that's probably one of the things that's changed where we don't acknowledge it enough. People come to Ireland now to get the same branding, you know, to spend time in uh, in Ireland with the multinational companies and the big brands that are here is really part of the attraction for a lot of our, our migrants. It helps their CV. helps their CV and they're, they're, they move in, they move out. You know, the sure quantity of immigration is going up, uh, which is a big social issue for us. But actually within that, there's a huge amount of movement. So it's, it's great to, professionally as well, I meet a lot of people who have actually spent time in Ireland. They're not in Ireland now, but they have great fond memories, just as, as I have great fond memories of, of London. I, I'd be an Anglophile, I would consider myself to be an Anglophile. Why did you come back, though? Came back um, on the basis that that was the plan. Um, Ailish and myself uh, moved to London, we got married, and we we had a plan to come back. And in fact, we were back a year thinking, have we made a mistake? Because we were really homesick uh, for London, even though we'd, we'd come back to, to Dublin. Um, so, you know, you, you make decisions at points in time. Um, you're predetermined um, to do it. I came back because I had a job in, in the central bank and... Uh, funny enough, one of the one of the features of the central bank was again from that kind of boy, boy aspiration. When the new central bank, you know, you're getting old when they already have an, a different building now. But that Sam Stevenson building in um, in, James in James Street, Street I still love it. Um, I loved it the first time I ever saw it, and um, even on, you know, it was kind of postcards that they sent out to schools with some monetary numbers or something on it. Uh, I really wanted to work in that building. And when I got that job, that was, a, that was also was a draw uh, to come back. And I think that's, for a lot of people, the physical infrastructure and the social infrastructure is really important. Uh, one of the things we're still somewhat deficient with in Ireland, even though many great things have happened, is that we probably still don't have a cosmopolitan, world-class, cultural um, experience. Dublin's go- and Cork and Galway and Limerick have, have lots of really interesting things, but they're, they're rather niche still. Um, whereas a city like London, which is really very close to us, is, is a global city in terms of the depth of the experiences that can be uh, gathered in. And that's why Irish people uh, travel. And even a topical issue about caps on Dublin Airport, you know, that a lot of that is the frustration that would come from Irish people trying to live here, experience things here, but also to go abroad, whether they go abroad to live or just go abroad to get other experiences. And I might come back to Dublin Airport if we've time, but I am interested in this thing, the argument at present that many people are putting up saying it's terrible that we have emigration again. But when you look at the size of our population, is the emigration that we're having particularly large? And is it often by people just wanting either professional development or personal development, want to see the world. That is part natural part of the human condition rather than it being forced upon them by economic circumstances as it was for previous generations in Ireland. 
Yeah, I think, well, look, I think it's a whole range of factors, but the, the factor we're just, the positive kind of factor we're talking about there, about the uh, pull factor as opposed to a push factor, I think is very significant. People are pulled towards a place they want to go to rather than pushed out of the place they're living in towards it. And I think a, a substantial part of our immigration uh, in Ireland is actually that kind of more positive one. Um, the humanitarian issues of people are being pushed out of the danger zones of, of the world right now, I think is important and it's, it's, it's tragic that we've got these things conflated with each other. The, there really is an issue though in the sheer scale of uh, immigration that we're experiencing right now because of the pressures it's putting upon uh, localities. You know, even you go to, it's the same, it's the same idea we were talking about earlier on, partly uh, in rural Ireland, the first thing that kind of annoys me is when the public policy elite in Dublin, of which I'm now well established in, uh, when they hear the word rural, they immediately think farming. And most people in rural Ireland aren't connected to the farm at all. They're very sensitive to it because they live and can see the, the uh, farming community is an important uh, bedrock, but they make their livings in the services sector. They make their livings in industrial complex like medtech and biopharma and tech companies. And with that lifestyle middle class, whatever professional you want to describe, they want to live in, in towns, sizable towns, but the features in those towns, independent of the immigration, is the same story when the kids come out of the school and they want to go for a profession, be it in law or dentistry or whatever, they go to the cities to go to the colleges, they join the big law firms or they, whatever, they want to pursue whatever their ambitions is, and they generally don't go back to their hometown. And so what's been happening is those towns have been devoid of the services of a solicitor to do the conveyancing, to do the normal things of households, to get a dentist appointment. And when that was the underlying issue, this kind of squeezed phenomenon, you add in then emigration where the hotel is withdrawn. That hotel might be used for christenings and first communions and so on. It's a feeling that this is going too far, but the personification of where it went were the immigrants. But actually, it might have been the indigenous population, uh, including myself, who left Tum, who didn't go back. And hollowed and, out. And hollowed out. Which meant then there's the lack of services and the people who remain complain, why isn't the state providing the services for Exactly. Us? So it's more complicated. It's certainly not the immigrants' fault. Right? Because one of the dreadful phrases that you hear occasionally now is that Ireland is full Ireland has plenty of space, doesn't it, to accommodate people. The problem is, have we put enough of the infrastructure and services in place for that? Yeah, I think that's the transition, the piece, uh, the speed at which this has occurred um, in terms of you know, the scale of, of, of um, migration for humanitarian reasons, really important, is, is actually putting that pressure on, but it's also... Revealing what was happening anyhow, which was the movement within Ireland, the intra-immigration um, from rural Ireland towards urban Ireland, um, particularly of a generation. And the explosion in the size of Dublin. So has Dublin become too big, though? Or is it that a natural thing that it has to become this big to be an international city? Both is the answer to that. In order to be an effective global international hub, which Dublin has become... The creaking aspects of that to try to catch up um, on, on all kinds of issues of housing being the most um, significant one, but also water and energy and air transportation, as we're talking about the kind of hub piece again, to go back to that issue. But 
Dublin needs to be big, but what it doesn't need to be is 40% or whatever the number might be of the economic activity in Ireland. Um, so how do you do both things? Well, Ireland needs to get much bigger, actually. And our population on the island, remarkably, is still below 1841. It's the only place on earth to have a lower population today than the 1840s. There was 1 billion people in the world in the 1840s. There's 8 billion today. Even pro rata, you know, that would be 64 million people, give or take, on the island of Ireland, and we're still below 8. As your point is, Ireland's got loads of room, um, but we have a mentality that we emigrate and that it's best to put, going back to the point earlier, it's best to put the education into the person and allow the person to take that education and talent to wherever they may go. And we didn't actually have the confidence to build the infrastructure to hold the population. Fergal O'Rourke, the new chair of IDA Ireland, sat in the same chair as you about a month ago to do this podcast and he was saying about 54% of IDA investment or IDA-backed international firms coming into Ireland. The money is outside of Dublin, 46% in Dublin. Uh, so how well do you think can we do in persuading more companies in the way that Medtech has gone to Galway, pharmaceuticals have gone to Cork, that, and particularly with the price of housing and the expenses of being in Dublin, that you can go to these other parts of Ireland and still have rapid access to Dublin? Yeah, absolutely. I think that phenomenon was really helped by the motorway system. You know, um, again, radial all back into Dublin, unfortunately, in its first phase. Um, it's about seven or eight years ago, I, I was doing some work about a connected island, the all-island ambition, a 10 million uh, island was the ambition. 10 million people living yeah. in the island. And that, you know, that was seen as outrageous. But given the points I made earlier on, um, you know, that 1841 census... 8 million on the island of Ireland, 17 on the island of Britain, right? Britain has just popped up towards 70 million in the last uh, couple of months. So pro rata were incredibly small, but the road network, the motorway network in particular, has been transformational, but it's been all radial out of Dublin. And so like any network, it's the last piece, it's the last connection point, is that if we got the motorway system that a fourth-class kid would say, what's the best way of uh, doing roads between those cities, right? So it's, everyone can picture what it would look like, uh, you know, the N17 um, up to Sligo. The I'm thinking more of the Cork-Limerick motorway. Cork-Limerick motorway is an absolute disgrace. The second and third cities in the country haven't been connected with a motorway. When they're, when they're connected, uh, over 90% of the population will be within 10 kilometres of getting onto the motorway system and then potentially going from Cork to Belfast without any traffic lights and so on. And it's not even just for economics, for business, because economics and business in Ireland has absolutely been humming, where the real thing is connecting our societies for the things that they want, which is connection between each other. Because it was also put in mind recently interviewing the country manager for Dexcom, which has announced it's going to Athen Rye, and they've started work on building a plant with at least a thousand jobs. And the country manager said to me that because of the motorway network, there are 750,000 people living within a half an hour of the plant. Absolutely. And an enormous opportunity to get people to work there, which got me thinking, well, there's also going to be much cheaper housing available for highly qualified people if you then put the other various services and infrastructures perhaps in place to make outside Dublin living attractive. Absolutely. And, and to the point you made earlier on about um, Fergal and the IDA and getting those jobs out there, it's a reality today that rural Ireland, in that descriptor, 
um, is as wealthy as urban Ireland. Because what people think, and they think of Dublin, they think of Balls Bridge and uh, Stevens Green, but like there's huge tranches of urban uh, Dublin will have low incomes and lots of social deprivation. Um, that, you know, incomes go a lot further in rural Ireland. And these incomes, again, in the mindset, oh, will only come from farming. They don't. They're coming from the medtech. People work in the city and live in what's defined as a rural area. This brings up, just brings to mind something that I've put to about four government ministers over the last year, and they've all run from it with alacrity. The idea of a Dublin waiting for people in certain jobs, particularly teachers, nurses, Gardaí, given how expensive it is to live in Dublin to either to own or to rent, and given the incomes that many of those people are on, they all seem to want to go and work in rural Ireland if they're going to stay in the professions. Are we going to need to have special pay rates for Dublin because it's more expensive? I think that's possibly an issue more connected to the public sector than the private sector. I think the private sector tends to find its level and tries to recompensate for that. Um, so I'm going to run after those same government ministers in trying to avoid this question. I think it actually is a question for the, for the public sector piece. And the private yeah, sector sorry, should, I mean, if shouldn't be adverse to it because... Teachers, guardian nurses. Absolutely. That's they're much better off if they had the same income in Donegal than in Dublin. And that's what I was going to go to, is that the private sector shouldn't be standing back from that particular topic. It just doesn't have appropriate... I don't believe it should spill over into the private sector because, again, living in London, the London waiting was, was an issue. But, but it really comes down to a society that says, we value these public servants because they're actually delivering the things that we really need. And, you know, we, in the budget, just to go back to the budget for a second, um, what we got in the last budget was 450 euros given to every Irish household, regardless of their income, to get them through this winter on the energy crisis we're experiencing. That used a billion euros to do that. It's two million households, effectively, in Ireland. That used a billion euros. The thing then that was outside the arbitrary line in the sand that the government drew was the billions that you couldn't spend. So one, one of those blocks of a billion was the public health system and the embargo that was had to be put on uh, in terms of hiring medical staff. So for 450 euros that a lot of people don't need, mostly not everybody, it was that you're now running the risk. You have the 450 euros, but you're running the risk of a trip on the, on the street outside. Will, will an ambulance come in time for you? Will you get into the hospital? You know, so what gains you, the 450 euros? Our allocations of making sure our public services are appropriate to the size of our society is really a critical issue. We have a million extra private sector workers and the same amount of public sector workers than 15 years ago. I want to ask you about infrastructure now as well. And we'll bring Dublin Airport into this. But I suppose after what we've seen even yesterday, the revelation now that the National Children's Hospital, when it's finally, finally completed, years after it was supposed to be, is going to cost two and a quarter billion euro, having initially been estimated about 925 million euro. What confidence can we have in this country between issues like that and with planning major infrastructural developments which don't take place that were capable of coping for the increased population? So take that one, Matt. You actually, I think, identified the true cost of that, which is the word years, not the actual money that you mentioned. We have never regretted 
a big piece of public infrastructure that we identified as needed. The real cost is the fact that that's been childless for the amount of time that it's been childless when it should have been built. We, we really distinguish here between effectiveness, efficiency and equity. And business is always obsessed by efficiency. Other actors in society, maybe the trade unions or NGOs, are obsessed with equity and fairness. But everybody seems to presume effectiveness, that it gets done. And too often in Ireland, it's slow to get done because both parts of the equity and the efficiency are having their little arguments with each other, but not getting on and effectively doing it. So the real cost of the Children's Hospital is not going to be the two and a half or three or four billion even. It's the years that were lost in getting there. And I think that's the same applies on everything. You listen to the motorway stories. We even had disgraceful issues of trying to put caps on the motorway uh, build out to finish that network on environmental grounds. Similarly, with the cap with, on, on the airport, we might be talking about. But we will, given this we've is, mentioned it three times already. We better get there. <laughs> Uh, it's fine, it's been said now, um, is, is the issue of what's not in place is actually more costly to us in the public domain right now. The opportunities that we could have to have a really connected country is our big opportunity. We see, and we will talk about Dublin Airport now because it sort of amuses me to an extent Michael O'Leary condemning the government for not allowing the cap to rise beyond 32 million because, one, he campaigned actively against the construction of the second terminal. He might say now that, well, I campaigned against the cost of it, too expensive, gold-plated, blah, blah, blah. But can you imagine what how it would have disadvantaged us over the last 15 years if we had not had that second terminal built in Dublin Airport? And the second thing that he has campaigned loudly against as well, and I think scared the politicians off us, was running a train line up to the airport, saying we didn't need it, that people could move in by bus. Sure. How much of a missed opportunity, again, was that in all of the years that we haven't had a train line out to Dublin Airport? Yeah, well, look, the, the, these are potential losses. And, and look, when we didn't have money, it was pretty much easier. You didn't have to make uh, resource choices. That's what economics is about, the allocation of resources um, as a profession. When you didn't have money, you didn't have these problems. We've had money now for over for a generation since... You know, arguably the 1990s when it started to take off here, which unfortunately is a long time ago now. We really have rarely regretted big public infrastructure. You will get some white elephants. You will get something wrong. Uh, the canals were built on the basis that they were they were supplanted by the, by the railway system, right? So they were a huge investment that didn't really repay themselves. They're beautiful now. We can retrofit things. There may be some things we get wrong, but there's very few in, in my regard, in my view, of public infrastructure that we will regret. We know we want stuff, but then we get these endless arguments about the efficiency and the equity. Don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating we just throw money uh, willy-nilly, but make sure you get it done first. You know, I often use this analogy. I can run five-minute mile pace. I just can't run a mile at five-minute mile pace. For a moment during the run, I'm going fast, but I can't. So I'm not effective. Yeah. Tell me how much you've ran. Tell me you've ran a mile to start with, and then I'll ask you the time. That's a much more interesting way to go about it. Where do you stand though on the issue of Dublin Airport? Because I know you're also part of your training in economics was in environmental economics. Yes, probably at a time before it was actually popular or regarded as important as it is now. So we have this need, and it's mandated to us by the European Union to reduce emissions by ninety percent between now and twenty forty. So that means 
aviation is one of the things that actually is major to that. And yet at the same time, we're simultaneously talking about allowing even more traffic to pass through Dublin Airport. Where do we find the correct outcome? Sure. So one of the things on on looking at the environment and where it hits the economy is you've got to see this as a kind of a systems approach. So it's a bit like squeezing a balloon. Uh, or even worse, uh, thinking of course it is a diet, you're just moving things around. Um, So on that regard, a critical gateway infrastructure like an airport, it doesn't have to be just Dublin Airport, it can be the regional airports need to be brought into this as well because we, we need that connectivity and that capacity, is that this is a single point of failure potentially um, in a trading nation, an island nation, that is whose economic well-being and economic resources come very significantly through those kind of access points, be they the seaports, the airports, or whatever they may be, that to take that particular point, and it is a point um, on, on the map, and put an arbitrary cap on that doesn't make any sense. If we want to be concerned about the environment, which I do, is to create the resources to actually retrofit the type of things in other parts of the economy. But to take what is a single point, a gateway, it's easy for environmentalists to see that and connect into it, but its costs are huge. And that's why I I just think the arbitrary cap is very damaging right now because it's going to take a while before that capacity can be delivered. But it's kind of part that Ireland is full. It's kind of an Ireland is full kind of narrative. It's kind of an economic equivalent to go with the uh, fairly offensive slogans that we hear that Ireland is full when it clearly isn't. But if there's an economic or sorry, an environmental argument about it, there's also the argument that, well, do we need to be continuing to funnel all of our air business through Dublin? Is this not an opportunity to say Dublin is full, but Ireland isn't because you can go via Cork or you can go via Shannon or you can go via Knock and then you can get onto the motorway. So put it this way, in terms of 32 million uh, transit through Dublin Airport, if it was only business that was going through there, there's plenty of capacity. What's actually driving those numbers are Irish citizens taking second and third and fourth and fifth trips. But also because of the demographic that we've got, you know, one in five or so not being born here to be connected to their own families and moving back and forth. It's, it's not just about business. It's a much more social issue. Now, if people have values about the environment they profess to have, it's not by putting a capacity constraint on an airport. They can choose how they do their air miles, how they do their carbon footprint. What I've learned over the last 30 years is that economic activity is more than quadrupled in Ireland and our emissions are pretty much the same. So that the capacity to decouple emissions from economic activity is possible. And we're going to see that in the airline business as well with sustainable aviation fuels with different capacities in terms of, of planes, etc. But that's, that's a specialist uh, piece. This is the point that if, you're, if you want to do an environmental issue, you don't pick the golden goose our infrastructure of airports, not just Dublin, is part of facilitating that golden goose that allows the choices to actually have environmental values. Because there's lots of places in society around the world where it's not about environmental, it's about it's actually just about survival. And in the energy proposition, security supply, competitiveness and environmental sustainability, these are all combining elements. After COP27 in Glasgow, everybody thought fossil fuels will never appear in any equation again yeah but stuff happens you know uh russia invades ukraine we rightly make a decision that we don't want to buy fossil fuels from the russian source 
that was a consequence that energy prices rocket up. We didn't run out of fossil fuels. No other thing happened in the markets. And in that, suddenly security supply became an issue and the cost of energy and the environmental concern got turned over. And that's my experience for 30 years. But to actually put limits on your capacity, just arbitrary limits on your capacity, is just daft. It's virtual signaling in the extreme. You took over as the boss of IBEC in 2009. As an economist, though, this was a very different job for you. Just for people who may not be familiar, they may think of IBEC as the representatives of the big business interests in Ireland. Is that what it is? It, it is that. It is the, it's the medium and it is the small because it's by far the biggest business organisation, not just in Ireland, and the biggest lobbying organisation by the Register of Lobbyists. We're actually the biggest of our type in Europe at this point, reflective of that business community that we have here, which creates so many opportunities for this generation of Irish people. Uh, IBEC as a business itself um, is about 45 million turnover business. We're bigger than the vast majority of our own members. We've over 300 staff and we have 39 brands. So things like Small Firms Association is IBEC, Retail Ireland, Drinks Ireland and so on. So we get to see not just the businesses, but also the employer aspect of that. So the religious orders will be members of IBEC because they employ lots of people. You know, our hospital system and our school systems, uh, they generate lots of employment as well. And so trying to have a coherent, consistent voice for business for the impact, positive impact that it can have for society is probably our biggest purpose. How concerned are you at present, though, that we could be running out of the dramatic gains that have been experienced in the last decade and a half uh, particularly if costs become too much, particularly for a lot of smaller employers? Yeah, well, that's, that's a really difficult uh, situation because it is a small um, community in Ireland in, in a global context. We have become a global hub. So we've just behemoths of companies who are here who can afford in their margins to absorb the kind of social, virtuous social um, things that we would want in terms of good wages, statutory sick pay, capacity in various leaves. The smaller business community having to live in the same environment have these costs pushed upon them and they can't justify this in terms of productivity or profitability and so get squeezed. And they can't pass that on to consumers. They're going to be going to the to the edge. Their margins will disappear. And we've, we've seen that in the turn this winter where the government has made a decision I think implicitly rather than explicitly, to try to deal with what we've had in Ireland in the last 10 years, which is the equivalent of an oil find. The modern-day equivalent of an oil find is the intellectual property embedded in corporate balance sheets. What I mean by this is patents and licenses and brands and so on. And the taxation system that's not designed by us, but by the OECD and all of the big nations, have come to a situation where intangible assets can move to jurisdictions like Ireland, which are beneficial to them on taxation front, but also has an ecosystem that is stable and English-speaking, trot out, not doing Fergal's job from the IDA here. But in that context, this amount of money that's gone into the Irish system, people deny this there, but again, you can see it everywhere. You know, just keep the team going, Matt. You can see it at the airport. Um, In and out, uh, we have so much resources in Ireland that comes from that phenomenon. So what happens in in other jurisdictions that found oil, they've tended to go two different ways, kind of polar. Scandinavian Norwegians 
have gone for a European social model, a welfare model, and maybe the Middle East have gone for a more individual freedom, a laissez-faire kind of approach. We ended up with gated communities and private police forces and migrants come in to do the work and the indigenous population don't really work, they dabble. We, in the best traditions of Ireland, want to do both. And you see that in the decisions that are made where the imposition to provide the European social model has been put on the business community and the households, who have even more money than corporates, we could talk about that another day, they're getting a free pass. The budget keeps cutting taxes, keeps giving people who don't need 450 euros, 450 euros of the winter. And this won't work because households have to pay for that social model as well. Or else make a decision that we do want to go the gated community. I wouldn't want to go live in that society, but maybe some people do. Well, that brings me to towards the end. But it does strike me that we're having an enormous amount of discussion in this country correctly about having enough housing available but maybe nowhere near enough conversation about the failure to put in infrastructure. And the infrastructure I've brought up with you already are things like public transport, like a train line out to Dublin Airport, and you could expand that about other forms of public transport in our cities and between our cities. But in particular, the failure in the last decade to adequately future-proof our water supplies and our electricity. And how much damage is that likely to cause to our economic growth in the future if, for example, we're now not able to have more data centres, which, although, yes, they use a lot of power, are absolutely essential to the businesses located here and to the corporation tax revenues they produce for Ireland. And absolutely, going back, going back on that one, uh, and absolutely needed because AI... It's going to need those data centers. Every time you put in a stupid question into chat GPT, you're actually damaging the environment. So the more stupidity that's out there, the worse it is for the environment or the mechanism of artificial intelligence. Um, But this comes back to basic plumbing. The main drainage uh, is that, you know, when you go back to the root of all of this, uh, having water and having waste is absolutely the basic for a society and infrastructure. Electricity is the next thing, but you know, my plumbing roots coming out here is that you really need to put the pipes in place in order to build any kind of ecosystem. But then how bad are we at planning for all of that? And how much responsibility then goes back to the fact that we seem to have an enormous objector culture here in Ireland, that a small vocal lobby, anywhere you try and do something, will be there to say, no, you can't do that here. Well, I think the failure of local government has been one of the um, significant features of Ireland by by generations. There's a lot of good people working in local authorities and are, are well motivated, but we actually don't incentivize. So we haven't made the decision about whether we want to be a global or a local. And obviously the states, the, the nationals in the middle of that. We've actually chosen the global. That's what we've done. That's where the wealth has come from. We now have to follow it up. So local decisions that are inconsistent with both the national and the global be devilous. You can't afford the luxury, uh, I would contend, not for the foreign investor, for ourselves, uh, to allow this inconsistency in planning, inconsistency between various subsets of of the the nation's jurisdictions uh, to overcome. People love democracy, All democracy gives you is a vote to choose who leads you. It's no democracy when you go into the coffee shop uh, in that regard. You're not not entitled uh, to to a coffee. And I think that we get mixed up in this. Democracy is very important, but there's 
infrastructure that's required for democracy to, to hold, and I would, I would be fearful that these infrastructural issues and the migration issue that's getting blamed in conjunction with this is actually beginning to start to erode that democracy that we so value. Danny McCoy, thank you so much for being with us. And that's it for today's Magnified with Matt Cooper. I hope you enjoyed it. There are loads of other interviews that you can go back and listen to if you've liked this or recommend it to a friend. Wherever it is you're listening to it, be Apple, Spotify or via the Go Loud app. And until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, and again with thanks to Strategic Power Connect. Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go loud. Sounds better with us.